welcome to Fantastic History. I'm Clay. I'm Sarah. We're a husband-wife duo who enjoy telling each other about amazing events, people, and mysteries throughout history. So, um, listeners, just a heads up, um, Sarah and I are both still uh, getting over some sickness. <laughs> we got some coughing, we got some uh, some sneezing and sniffling, so if uh, if either of us sound a little different especially myself uh please excuse us i think you sound great (laughs) thank you (laughs) we are trying our best to get over this um we are pretty sure we have long COVID. it's fine yeah it's pretty pretty difficult but the show must go on (laughs) so today um i have a story that i've been wanting to tell you about since we started the podcast. Ooh. It's like one of the very first things I wanted to talk about. That's so exciting. And I finally get to talk about it. Yay. All right. So I'm going to set it up for us. Okay. Okay. On August 6th, 1945, may sound familiar. Mm-hmm. America dropped an atomic bomb on Hiroshima. And three days later, another on Nagasaki. Uh, This was an effort to end the war with Japan and avoid a long and costly land and sea campaign. But the U.S. did not know if Japan would surrender after two bombings. So a third bomb was being prepared to be dropped on August 19th. Now, fortunately, Japan's surrender four days prior avoided this. But the core of the third bomb had already been developed. Uh Uh-oh. And... As the, war was, as the world was moving out of war and into a era of using what was learned from the war in domestic projects, this three-and-a-half-inch plutonium sphere would be used for other purposes. Oh, dear. However, this item was so dangerous that physicist Richard Feynman described the experiments performed on it as tickling the tail of a sleeping dragon Uh uh-oh and the events that followed would earn the item its well-known nickname the demon core oh my god i'm obsessed with this you don't even have to say anything else now let's start back in 1945 again okay the atomic bombs were made and detonated that year due to the collaborative efforts of 130,000 people working on the Manhattan Project. Dang. The first bomb was nicknamed the Gadget and was detonated in New Mexico on July 16th. It was a test run and the first man-made nuclear explosion. Wow. Two isotopes were chosen to be used as the fuel for these nuclear weapons, plutonium-239 and uranium-235. Now, plutonium uh, could be created, but the uranium would be much harder to come by. So plutonium, the plutonium core, was preferred. The gadget used a plutonium core. Now, these isotopes were used because they, more easily than other isotopes, undergo uh, fission, which is what occurs when a neutron strikes the nucleus of an isotope, and it splits the nucleus, releasing a ton of energy. Oh. And the splitting creates new neutrons, which strike more nuclei, and it creates a big chain reaction. And when you have a, a core that's like three inches in diameter, there's a there's a lot of atoms in there, trillions and trillions of atoms. So this, this reaction happens extremely quick, and then it creates the atomic ex- explosion. 
The two bombs dropped on Japan both relied on fission, but they worked differently. Little Boy, which was dropped on Hiroshima, used a fission chain reaction using um, the uh, uranium isotope. Um, the bomb used a gun-type design that shot two masses of uranium um, into one another. Oh, boy. And upon connecting the two masses would set off a fission chain reaction that would detonate the bomb. Good grief. But Fat Man, the Fat Man core was plutonium. And the way that the plutonium core was detonated was it was surrounded by a bunch of explosions. So that when it was ignited, the explosions would all happen at the same time and it would compress the plutonium core. Oh my God. Super quick. And this, uh, this would force a fission reaction. So that's how the two bombs worked. <laughs> I don't understand science at all. So this is like blowing my mind that is wild i never i never have known how that worked and that's just that's nuts yeah and it was the first time that anyone had ever really got tried to understand this reaction and how Mm -hmm. it worked so this was all brand new basically so when the war ended and the united states found itself with a perfectly good sphere of plutonium (laughs) and they had spent the equivalent of 23 billion dollars in today's money on the Manhattan Project. <laughs> well, they decided they would keep it at the Los Alamos Laboratory where it had been created okay. and uh, run some tests on it. Perhaps they could use it at a later date, but they wanted to better understand how this worked because this was kind of new science. And, you know, it was very valuable to test it and understand it. I mean, it, it, it it's what gave birth to um, nuclear power, mm, for mm-hmm. instance. Now, in its current form, the mass was subcritical, meaning it didn't have the ability to undergo a fission reaction. But scientists wanted to know what conditions they could set up that would push the core towards criticality and how far they could push it before a fission reaction would occur. They would be tickling the dragon's tail. Oh, gee whiz. Okay. Now, push, pushing the plutonium core too critical would not necessarily create a massive atomic explosion, but it would re- release radiation. Mm. This is why the tests were not done in the middle of the desert in a small shack with one or two people. Oh, yeah. You know, anticipating a, a, a nuclear explosion at any second, but it was still very, very dangerous. The team used neuron reflectors set up around the demon core to try and push the core to its limits as... Um, Neurons would be reflecting off of that and back into the core and, you know, starting the fission reaction. And they'd be using a Geiger counter to know how far they were pushing it and to know when they needed to stop. (sighs) So on August 21st, 1945, physicist Harry Dallahan was performing such tests on the demon core. He was arranging uh, neuron reflective tungsten bricks around the core in different arrangements to see what arrangements resulted in what type of reaction and just to see how close to criticality he could get before he had to back off. But as he went to place one of his last bricks, the Geiger counter started going off and warning him, Uh if you kept going, the demon core is going to go critical. You got to back off. It it wasn't exactly saying those words to him. (laughs) Was it not? No, it wasn't, but you could... uh, you could, you could, you could guess. So he didn't continue. He said, okay, backing off. 
Later that night... Oh, God. Everyone except a few security guards had gone home. Harry returned to perform one more test. Okay, then. He arranged the tungsten bricks again as he had before. Mm. And as he lowered the last brick, the Geiger counter again warned him to stop. Which he, he said, okay. I'm, I'm going to stop now. Except he made a critical mistake. An accident. He dropped the brick. Oh, my God. Imme- oh, my God. Immediately, the core went subcritical. <gasps> oh, sorry, supercritical. Oh, my God. That's the opposite of subcritical. The core went supercritical, and the fission re- chain reaction was achieved. <gasps> the dragon was woken. Oh, dip. He claimed he saw a blue light come from the core, and a wave of heat rush over him. But in an instant, within a, a second or, or less, he pushed the brick off the assembly, immediately stopping the reaction. Uh-huh. But the damage was done. Uh-huh. Harry had been exposed to a fatal dose of radiation. More radiation than anyone in history had ever received. Oh, dear. Just 25 days later, Harry died of acute radiation poisoning and organ failure at the age of 24. Took longer than I thought, actually. On his gravestone, it reads... During an experiment gone awry, he became the first American casualty of the atomic age. Wow. But he was not alone that night. As I said, there were security guards on the premises. Oh, dear. And there was a security guard sitting nearby in the lab. Oh, come on. Private Robert Hemmerley was sitting nearby at a desk, and he was also exposed to this burst of radiation. But he would die 33 years later. Oh! At the age of 62, at the age of 62, from leukemia, Interesting. possibly as a result of his exposure right. in Los Alamos, but not, not for sure. Not for sure, possibly. Hmm. So the Demon Corps had killed one person, but it was not finished yet. I mean, that it's the Demon Corps. Of course, it's not. Just seven months later. In that same hospital, another person would die in the exact same way. What? <clears throat> Louis Stolton was a colleague of Harry. After Harry's passing, Stolton began leading tests on the Demon Corps himself. <sighs> Stolton was more brash than Harry. <laughs> okay, this will be fine. Yeah. <laughs> You'll get a kick out of this guy. He's, he's a loose cannon. I'm so excited. So... um. Stolton would perform his tests in an open shirt, blue jeans, and cowboy <laughs> boots. Okay, then. He was a character. <laughs> but a scientist. Mm-hmm. In May of 1946, Stolton was performing a test on the Demon Corps using two half shells of beryllium. The Demon Corps would sit in the bottom half of the shell, and the upper half of the shell would slowly be lowered on top. Now the shell did the same thing as the um, as the tungsten bricks. It reflected the neurons, and as the shell, um, the top of the shell came closer and closer to the bottom part of the shell, it would bring the core closer and closer to criticality. Oh God, God! And if the shells were ever to fully shut, it would go super critical once again. Oh, okay. Stolton, however, was a bit too comfortable with his test. 
Well, I mean, yeah, he's sitting around with his blouse open, just chilling in his cowboy <laughs> boots, probably wearing some type of wacky hat. Like, it, come on, man. You could sort of see him in a cowboy hat. So instead of using the special shims on the shell that would keep it from ever closing, <laughs> oh, God. he would hold the top half with his bare hand. Of course he would. And on in the other hand, he would use a the a flathead screwdriver to keep the two halves from closing com- completely. Okay. You know, sort of having it shimmed in between, maybe like twisting it to get it higher, Mm-mm. twisting it again to get it lower. Just to have as much control as possible to get the cores to get the core to come as close to critical as he possibly could, because that was, I mean, that was the test. Right. If they weren't supposed to be doing this, then they wouldn't be. Stalin's bravado and nonchalant attitude. Well, you know. Uh huh. He was tickling that dragon's tail. On May twenty first, nineteen forty six, Stalin was performing this test as he had. Dozens of times, possibly more than dozens, with a team of seven other personnel. Oh, dear. The core had recently been planned to be used in a bomb, exploded as part of the Operation Crossroads nuclear tests the following month. It was to be the first nuclear weapons test outside of wartime, as well as the first atomic detonation since Nagasaki. Mm. With the core uh, about a month away from being destroyed, and per- perhaps Stolten was feeling a bit eager to move quickly and yeah. do as much as he could. He may have also been showing off his cool technique to his colleague, Alvin Graves, who was observing next to him. Or perhaps it was just an inevitable error. This was bound to happen eventually. Uh-huh. But Stolten's hand slipped. Yeah, of course it did. The screwdriver slipped. Oh, my God. And the shells fell together. <laughs> and the dragon was awoken once again. Oh, God. A flash of blue light and a wave of heat covered everyone in the lab. But only for a fraction of a second as Stolen shoved the top of the shell off the core with his bare hand, ending it. But just like last time, mm-hmm. the damage was already done. The lab was evacuated, but Stolen ordered everyone back and told them to get where they were. Are you kidding me? And to mark exactly where they had been standing. He had to determine how much radiation each person had just absorbed. Okay. And how long they would live. So it's like, okay, so I know I just killed everyone in the room, but if you could come back really quick, just put a little X where you were, we can start doing the countdown until your funeral. Don't worry about it. Thanks. Thanks for your help. His thought was, we need to know exactly what happened, who's at risk and who's who's at at less risk. Mm. Because it was already done. Was, yeah. you, you weren't going to really get in any more damage at, at this point. <laughs> uh, of course, this was difficult, though, because their radiation equipment had been damaged in the accident. Yeah. Um, now, it was later determined that Stolten's body had actually shielded most of the others because of his proximity to the core. Oh. Um, but this meant that he had absorbed himself a fatal dose of radiation. Yeah. Whereas Dallahan had absorbed a lethal amount of radiation, Stol- uh, Stolten had absorbed five times <gasps> that amount. Oh, my God. His internal radiation burns were described as three-dimensional sunburns. Oh, God. He would eventually fall into a, a coma and die nine days after the accident in the same hospital that Harry Dallahan had died, even treated by some of the same nurses. Wow. 
He was 35, and his cause of death was the exact same mm. radiation sickness. That's awful. Yeah. His colleagues were lucky. They did not receive a fatal dose, and by all accounts, it seems the accident didn't contribute to their deaths to their deaths at all. Nobody else, except one person who died of leukemia nineteen years later. Just like the other one. Just like the other one, but huh. it's unknown if it was as a result of this or not. Hmm. However, Stolten was not the last criticality event at Los Alamos. Oh come on! Eight years later, Cecil Kelly. A 38-year-old chemical operator was operating a mixing tank containing residual plutonium along with other solvents and acids. Oh, Residual. Mm. Not even like, you know, they, they, they weren't doing tests on plutonium. Right. So in this form, in this liquid form with all these other solvents and acids and everything swirling around, it was not thought that a criticality event could even take place. Because, you know, you're thinking about how it occurred the first time and in the bombs. It's completely different because those events occurred when the substance was in a spherical form. However, in the swirling tank, enough plutonium formed into a thick enough vortex with neurons bouncing off of the other materials in the mix that it actually created a fission reaction. Oh, my God. Now, Kelly had been looking into the mixing container through a small viewing window when the event occurred for only 200 microseconds. And this was enough to blast him. Oh my God. With seven times the adult lethal dose of radiation. Holy shit. Kelly's incident revealed that within a few hours, his white cells were gone. (gasps) Oh my God. And within 24 hours, his red cells were all gone. What? And after 35 hours, he had died of heart failure. Since criticality testing had begun, 60 accidents have occurred, which have led to the deaths of 21 people worldwide. Wow. Now, as for the Demon Corps, it was not used in Operation Crossroads after all. Interesting. Because it needed, because at the time it had gone critical, it had to cool down, basically, before it could be used. Um, in something like that. Right. So it was not used in the in Operation Crossroads. It was ultimately melted down and recycled into other plutonium cores. That's kind of a bummer, if I'm honest. Yeah. But that is the story of the dangerous, scary, and, and, and aptly named Demon Core. I picture it looking exactly like the Tesseract, right? <laughs> That's... The only thing I can picture. <laughs> well, we will have pictures on oh, our Instagram okay. of the Demon Core and some other pictures of, um, you know, reenactments of what the test would have looked like, things like that. There are some pictures, some pretty graphic pictures of the damage. I think that was done to Stolten, mm. his hand. Oh, that, God. That had removed the, the shell. Oh, yeah. It had blistered uh. and it looked really bad. So, if if we don't put that up, which we may not, because <laughs> hey, we're, we're keeping it PG thirteen. <laughs> well, I don't know. The person who runs our Instagram is a little bit of a ghoul, um, so it might go up. But if it does, it will be you know, we'll do a carousel and we'll have a slide right beforehand that lets you know it's coming up as the next picture. <laughs> we'll see. Yeah. So well, I just think it's it's 
it's interesting. This this core had been intended to end the lives of potentially hundreds of thousands of Japanese, mm-hmm. and in the end, it still killed people. It was out for blood. Yeah, very dangerous. And I, I thought the uh, the term "tickling the dragon's tail" was such a apt description. Touch, you know, it, just just playing with something that we don't we didn't understand enough. Yeah. I will say, like, if you, and nobody steal this idea if it doesn't already exist, but imagine if you are a band, right, and your name is The Demon Core, and the name of your first album is Tickling the Dragon's Tail. Mm. That freaking rules, right? That would have crushed in the 80s. Yeah. Damn. Yeah, it's it's a pretty, it's a pretty metal name. Yeah. Or something that, uh. Isn't doesn't quite live up to the name, but it's 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 darn scary. That would have been Eddie Munson's favorite album, I feel like. <laughs> well, thank you for listening all. Oh, I did not write down our outro, so uh, we're gonna have to wing it, Sarah. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> we're gonna have to wing it. Thank okay. you thank you for listening to our podcast. If you liked it, please be sure to rate and review us on your favorite listening platform. And subscribe. And subscribe. And tell your friends about it. We are on Instagram and Twitter mm-hmm. at Fantastic H Pod. You can uh, follow us there for all sorts of interesting stuff, and you can also reach out to us there if you have any any uh, suggestions or comments. And if you don't want to reach out to us on social media, we got a Gmail. It's uh, FantasticHistoryPod at Gmail You can reach out to us there. Tell us whatever you're feeling. You nailed it. Thank you. And thank you for listening, and we will see you next week. Bye.